You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are starting the book of Revelation this morning. I feel like there should have been a drum roll for that, but there, there isn't. So I did a vote on Instagram. Yeah, we should have cut Yeah, go on. So we are in the book of Revelation this morning, and I am excited to start this book with you. Uh, it is a fascinating book. We're going to be in this book for quite a long time because there's just so much in it. It's not the sort of book you can just jump straight into, I'm afraid. It does require quite a lot of preparation and a lot of background knowledge. There is a reason why this book is considered by some the most controversial book in the Bible. It deals with what we call end times and people can go off on tangents. People have their own very peculiar views on that and it's been used and misused over the years. So I want to try and hopefully bring a sane and biblical approach to you, but also not shying away uh, from what the Bible does teach in these areas. Another reason why it's so confusing and a lot of people shy away from it is over the, the years, people have come up with various different ways to interpret this book, and that also adds to the confusion. Many in the church do not like preaching this book. It's quite unusual to find sermons from Revelation for some of those reasons. At the Anglican Church, for example, you know they have a, like a yearly reading schedule since like 1662. Thomas Cramer, he, like the Office of Common Lectionary, they call it. And they still use it today and they go through, I think it's three times the New Testament, one times the Old Testament with their public readings. What you probably don't know is they do three times the New Testament except the book of Revelation. That's left out of their reading for the year, so they just don't do the book of Revelation. People like Martin Luther did not like the book of Revelation. He tried to get it removed from the Bible. John Calvin didn't really know what to do. A famous Christian reformer, he wrote a 22-volume commentary on the New Testament, every book except the book of Revelation. He didn't know how to really deal with it. And I'm hoping as we go through, I'll be able to show you why these people didn't know how to deal with it. They had some wrong starting assumptions. Revelation is filled with what we call symbolic language, which confuses a lot of people. And a lot of people, they kind of make these symbols to be whatever they want them to be, and that's where you start getting some of these very unusual interpretations. I'll explain some of those as we go through. But despite all of those challenges and issues that the book of Revelation presents, I do think it is absolutely vital for the church to study the book of Revelation. Quite frankly, it's a part of Scripture, it's a part of the Bible. Not only that, it is the final bookend to the Bible. Most people know the book of Genesis, that's the very first book in the Bible. The book of Revelation is the final book of the Bible, and they are bookends, foundation stone and the capstone, you could say, and they are very much connected. Let me give you a few examples. In Genesis, you get the creation of the heavens and the earth, and in Revelation, you get the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis, you get the earthly paradise of Eden that was lost through sin, and in Revelation, you get the paradise of God with the tree of life proceeding from the throne of God. In Genesis, we see the first man and his wife over all creation, and in Revelation, we behold the second man and his bride ruling over the whole world. In Genesis, we're told of the first sacrificial lamb, and in Revelation, the lamb once slain is standing in the midst of the throne. In Genesis, we see the rise of Babel, or Babylon, and in Revelation, we are called to see the doom of Babylon. In Genesis, we see man's city. In Revelation, we see the city of God. Genesis shows us sorrow, death, pain, and tears, and Revelation does not close until we've seen God wiping away all those tears. For those reasons alone, you have to study the book of Revelation if you want to have a well-rounded theology. Without the book of Revelation, we really do miss the final drama of the wonderful epic that we call the Bible. Because the Bible is just a 
it's a story, it's true, it's historical fact, but it connects to real history, but it is a narrative. It follows along from Genesis to Revelation, and it tells of God's story of how he entered into this earth to redeem a people for himself, and also where he's trying to get us to. It's the ending of all endings, you could say. But there is a veil of mystery over this book, for the confusing reasons I've said, but that is the general perception of it in the culture. You may have seen recently David Walliams. I'm sure many of you have got his kids' books, if you've got kids. Uh, we, we have. He's a famous comedian. He did an interview in The Guardian last month about books he likes to read. He said this, The book I couldn't finish. He said, The Bible. I brought one with the intention of finally reading it cover to cover. And while I was reading Genesis, I found myself flicking all the way to Revelation to see if there was a happy ending, and sadly there isn't. Now, most of us will be like, what? <laughs> like, what? Like, that's the sort of approach that most people use to studying the Bible. They kind of just flick through it. And flicking through the book of Revelation will not do. Um, you have to understand the whole narrative of the Bible. By the time we get to the end of Revelation, the pain and cruelty of death has been defeated. The new heavens and the new earth have begun. God himself is dwelling among his people. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer be any death any mourning, any crying, any pain, for the first things have passed away. All evil has been dealt with. Nothing but justice, peace, righteousness, love are the foundations of the throne of the Lamb of God. It is an amazing ending. It is a story of hope, and that is a story that we're going to look at in Revelation. So, with all respect to David Williams, he needs to read it properly, and he needs to understand the whole story. The story of Revelation is, quite frankly, amazing. Now, often referred to as the Apocalypse or Revelation, it has impacted popular culture over the years, probably more than we, all, than we know. And you, you all would have experienced this in some form or another. References to Armageddon as the end of the world, to 666, the mark of the beast, the omen, you remember that movie? All these things play on popular themes from Revelation. The mark of the beast, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You can travel the world, you'll find art paintings, frescoes, you can look on Netflix, you'll find movies, go into comic book stores, you'll find comic books with these sorts of imageries on. The one on the top right there, that's from The Simpsons. They include many of these references. This is just how the book of Revelation has seeped into popular culture. And because of this, we need to make sure, yeah, when things go into popular culture, obviously what you're seeing and hearing of them is not a true representation of what they actually are. It's a well, you know, it is what it is. You see what I mean? But we need to make sure that we have a proper understanding of what these things are saying, not an understanding that we actually pick up from popular culture. Now, I don't want to engage... There is a, there is a danger of what we call newspaper exegesis. And this is where you see something happening in the world and you try and find a Bible verse to show that that's happening and you make everything a fulfillment of prophecy. That can get you in a lot of trouble very, very quickly. I want to try and avoid that. Well, I will definitely avoid that. But I also want to show you how these things do connect to the real world. So that's the line we'll be taking on this. Many people in the church through generations past have assumed that they are seeing the events of Revelation unfold. One of my favorite examples of this is the monks at Lindisfarne. If any of you have been to the little island of Lindisfarne off the coast up in the Midlands, it's where there was a famous monastery there that was the centre of Christianity in like the 8th century. And the monks, this is where the first Viking attack happened on Lindisfarne. So the Vikings came across the sea at the beginning of the Viking era and they would ransack the monasteries because they had gold there and they'd rape and pillage and do all the things that the Vikings did. And they were, in the early days, it was, it was 
what you see in the movie representations. The sack of Lindisfarne is very, very famous. But the monks at that time thought the apocalypse was upon them. And I actually can't blame them for that, because think of them here. There's no global communication or travel. They're sort of they're in their community they have, and they're doing what they do. And then from the sea, they see these dragon-crested ships approaching. And remember, in the book of Revelation, you'll, you'll, you'll read about dragons and the sea and all these kinds of imagery. And then off those boats jumped these tattooed warriors, most of them with, Odin, with Thor's hammer, which is basically an upside-down cross, hanging from their necks and on the sides of their shields, and then they came into the monastery and did everything that they did. You can't really blame them for thinking that these things were playing out exactly like they thought it was. However, obviously, with hindsight, we know that wasn't the situation, but it is a good example of how easily it is to make these things fit current events. But the sack of Lindisfarne is just a... a I find the Vikings quite fascinating. That's just one of those historical examples that I like. Now, that's one reason... We need to study the, the book of Revelation. Another reason is, quite frankly, it is the Bible study to end all Bible studies, if we could put it like that. The reason is there are 404 verses in Revelation. 278 of them are references or direct allusions to the Old Testament. So that's over half the book is basically just taking things out of the Old Testament. This is the reason why many people don't understand it because they haven't done enough time in the Old Testament. They don't like studying the Old Testament. In the church, we generally lean towards the New Testament. That's our error. Revelation contains citations or allusions from 28 of the 39 books of the Old Testament, 505 such citations, and allusions are basically from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So these are the major Old Testament prophets. And this, again, is why we haven't done our time in Old Testament prophecy, and therefore when we read a book in the New Testament that is basically telling us how these things play out from Old Testament prophecy, we fail to understand it, and that is our problem. We must understand Revelation is not simply a step-by-step -step manual of the future, it's not an end times playbook, it is actually a first century Jewish document written solely within the context of a biblical kingdom theology. It tells us the final story of how God's kingdom comes to earth, and that is a story that started all the way back in the book of Genesis. And that is what we have been playing through the entire history of the world, basically. And you can actually look around the world and see in history. 2,000 years ago, God won that battle when he entered into history. That is something that is well acknowledged by believer and unbeliever alike. This was a big part in that story. Revelation gives us the final picture for that. Much of what we see needs to be interpreted through a biblical framework. If you don't have a good biblical framework, you will probably not understand the book. But there are many things trying to tell us stories. Like, I remember I said the Bible is a narrative. There are many other narratives in the world. Many people want you to believe their narrative. If you do not interpret things through a biblical narrative that we are claiming is the one true narrative, then you will pick up one of those other narratives. Inadvertently, subconsciously, it's impossible not to. Worldviews, basically everyone has a worldview. Everyone interprets things, everyone makes ethical decisions through a framework of beliefs. And that is what I want us to challenge, and this is what Revelation speaks into also. There are many things going on in the world today that do sound like something out of a science fiction novel. Quite frankly, there are. There's just no other way to explain it, and they are a reality. We will be looking at some of these things. You may have noticed in popular culture just how prevalent dystopian future uh, is at the moment. You know, there's so many TV shows that we're going to look at a few in a moment. The apocalypse is a big theme in popular culture at the moment. It seems to just be the mood of the world right now. 
Stylist Magazine. I was reading this the other day. Not because I read Stylist Magazine. I was actually looking for something like this is what I was looking for, right? This is what they say about dystopian models. They say the term itself encompasses a bunch of different scenarios, from a state wrought by extreme injustice at the hands of an evil totalitarian government to a world destroyed by an apocalyptic event. Now, that's a pretty good description of what we are going to encounter in some patches of the book of Revelation. What started with the Hunger Games a few years ago, do you remember the story of the Hunger Games? A world controlled by a rich, wealthy elite who control all the resources for a poor population, and they make them go through these various different games. And then you have The Walking Dead, which has been on and on. This is sort of a, a dystopian future where a virus has taken over the world and made people into uh, soulless kind of zombies, and it's on and on. That's how it started. Current popular one on Netflix, The Handmaid's Tale. This is a envisages a future United States that has been taken over by a fundamentalist theocratic dictatorship called the Gilead. And the handmaids are forced to, to be servants and, and bear children for this elite. But again, it's this sort of dystopian future model. Popular one at the moment, The Rain. This one's quite... It says they... Basically, this is a story that a virus has ravaged the world and it now lives in the rain, and the survivors in the future are having to survive. This is a very new one, if any of you saw this. It's a series about a devastating global pandemic that kills millions of people and resets humanity. And this one's like, if you actually saw any of this, someone with a virus, someone starts showing signs of a virus, everyone in the room grabs their face masks, and then you, you just little things like this, and then you'll notice that the, when they're queuing to get into places, they're queuing outside and someone's coming along, scanning their temperature. It's just all these things. You see how it just gets picked up into popular culture and it becomes normal and thus it's downstream of what we live in our lives. There is a whole genre known as pandemic movies now. And all these things, we could just say they're TV and they belong in the world of fantasy and TV. And that's absolutely true. Personally, I quite like the dystopian genre. I think it's quite fun and exciting. But, you know, I know it's not real when I'm watching these sorts of things. But what we are going to look at I do believe is very real. We could say it's all fun and there's nothing wrong with that, except I would say I could actually probably find you stranger things than what I've just shown you on those TV shows just from actually what's going on in the actual world today. Much stranger. They say you know, it's, the truth is stranger than fiction. There's very good reasons for that. Let me give you just a small introduction to some of these things and show you how this plays out in the world. I don't want to start getting you down into conspiracy theories, because we've all seen how that works. You can go on YouTube, you can find a link to pretty much anything. It's the worst way to study something, okay? But if you have teachers that you know and respect, and you know where they're coming from, and you know their viewpoints, we're going to be guided by the Bible as we go through this, and hopefully we'll see the Word of God revealed these things long before anyone else. Let me give you just a couple of examples, because I'm trying to show you that there are narratives in the world today. Like I said, everyone has a story, uh, there are agendas going on, some good, some bad. It's just the way the world works, and I want to show you some of these things. How many of you have heard of the 2030 Agenda? So this is the United Nations, big organizations, global organizations. This is the, their, basically their plan for transforming the world by 2030. They have done this through what they call 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Whenever you see the word sustainable, you should be a little suspicious. It's one of these buzzwords that has a... It's like a code word for a lot of different things. Sustainable development goals. This is a collection of 17 interlinked global goals. And, quote, they are designed to be a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. Here are just a few of them. Now, 
don't misunderstand me. Some of these things we would all agree would it be great if you could get some of these achieved. Um, they're good goals, and that's where, you know, no poverty, no hunger. It's going to be gender equality, clean energy, climate action. Life on land is going to be managed. Peace and justice will be throughout the globe if, you, if we follow these 17 sustainable global initiatives. Now, you have to read the small print, and I've spent a lot of time reading the small print this week. Let me summarize it for you. This is basically, in all the language of the world that we have, what they're actually proposing, that the big narrative of the world, and these things are behind a lot of what we see going on in the world today. They just are. There's no way around it. What it basically ends up with is a restructuring of the world economy and industry with ever-tightening regulations put in place by larger governments who are working in league with elite private businesses. So this is the large private businesses in the world that have the power and cooperation of large governments, and they will implement these global things through regulation, through pressure, through money, all these different things. That is ultimately what they have. You can read it yourself, but this is the small print of what these things basically are. Now, if you just think, there's one factor that they're not factoring into this, and that is that the world is fallen and broken, and there is a lot of evil in this world. And whenever you get large governments with too much power, you get corruption, and these things do not play out for peace and justice. We know that that will not be the case, and I could literally give you the example of every nation in the world for that. I'd be struggle to find one exception to that rule. Now, for me, that sounds very similar to back to the Hunger Games, to be frank. Uh, you can see how quickly they, they get from that to, the, to there. Now, in the last year, we've had the whole COVID-19 things, and this is being used as an excuse to try and push some of these agendas. Now, before you start thinking, oh, no, where's he going with this? This is going to be... I've looked into this a lot. I'm not going to do a lot of it now, but we will touch on various things. There's just no other way around it, to be frank. It's not just about an actual virus. There is much more going on. I'll give you just a couple of examples. This man here is a guy called Klaus Schwab. He is the president and founder of the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum is the largest uh, conglomeration of like those two groups, government officials and rich businessmen. Every year they meet in Davos, Switzerland, and they have this, these meetings where they try and plan basically those 17 global things that the United Nations are trying to implement. Just for interest, the whole government SAGE advisory team that's been advising us through COVID all attended the World Economic Forum. They all listened to this man. He is Professor Klaus Schwab. And he wrote a book just last year called COVID-19 and the Great Reset. If you've never heard that term, it'll, well, you probably have heard that term. It'll come up. Listen to what he says. He says, this pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Many things will change forever. A new world will emerge. The societal upheaval unleashed by COVID-19 will last for years and possibly generations. Most of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is never. Every country from the United States to China must participate. Every industry from oil and gas and tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. For global leaders to shape the future, the future state of global relations, the direction of national economies, the priorities of societies, 
the nature of business models and the management of global common interests. Now, read between the lines of what this is saying here. Every country, so a globalist leadership, but not of democratic countries where people get to decide and have a say in governments. Look at how he phrases it. Global leaders will shape society's relations and they will direct the economy and they will even direct the priorities of society. A small group of global leaders, this is exactly the sort of thing that we see going on in the world today. Now, we could go on and on looking at these things. It's fascinating in some respects, but ultimately, what you are seeing with all these things is man's attempt to bring a kingdom onto this earth in his own image. This is what man has always done. This is what Napoleon tried to do. When, this is what Hitler said he was going to do. The Reich that'll last for a thousand years. Where do you think the thousand year kingdom comes from? That's from the book of Revelation. It's always been men who reject God trying to bring their kingdom onto this earth and do their own thing. And yet we've seen history tells us time and time again that this does not end well because they underestimate the sinfulness of man's heart. Something has to be done. But there is one person who will do it. There is one person who will bring that kingdom of peace. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings. That is what this book of Revelation is about. He will come back and he will deal with all these attempts that set themselves up against God, that cause devastation and destruction on this world under the name of trying to be their own kingdoms. This is the book of Revelation. It's a fascinating book to study. Basically, they've forgotten about God. They've forgotten whose world it is. And we fall into that same category sometimes. It's very easy just to go along in your day-to-day -day lives without realizing that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it is his. And he's not a distant God, although we, cannot, we may not be able to see him. He came to this earth to reveal himself to us 2,000 years ago, and he's gone away now. But the promise was that he would always come back. And Revelation tells us some of the things to watch out for when that time is near. This is what the book of Revelation addresses. We could say there has always been a cosmic battle between good and evil that has raged through history. This is part of the narrative of the Bible. We see it in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, when they're deceived to disobey God. And in Revelation, we see the culmination of that war. Everything has been leading up to what we read in the book of Revelation. It is the culmination of all the hopes of the gospel, the fulfillments of all the covenantal promises. It is the ultimate defeat of Satan and all those who follow him. How can we, as a church, neglect such a book? When Jesus was here on this earth, he said this very famous word, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, what does a kingdom need? A king. And what does a, kingdom, a king have? He has a kingdom, a territory that he rules over. This is the theme of the Bible. You could actually sum up the Bible by saying the predominant theme in the Bible is the coming kingdom of God. And it's absolutely essential to a proper biblical theology. And it's such a tragic shame that the vast majority of the church do not understand the kingdom of God of God. The book of Revelation is filled with kingdom languages. 41 times you have thrones mentioned. Three of those times are for Satan's throne, the kingdom that he has on this earth at the moment. You have crowns, reigning, power, judgment, wrath. All of these things are what a king does when he takes back his kingdom. Now, we have to understand the kingdom is not here yet. This is a big issue in Christian theology. A lot of people say that the kingdom is here now. It is just a spiritual kingdom. That is a mistake. A lot of people say that. They have this model where they say it's, ne it's, it's now but not yet. 
I don't really agree with that model. We've seen previews of the kingdom when Christ was here on earth. He was revealing himself and his kingdom power. Yes, that's absolutely. We've seen, haven't we, how we are given citizenship in the coming kingdom through being born again, through becoming Christians that guarantee our future with the coming king. But the Bible teaches that the kingdom comes when Christ returns. And that is what the book of Revelation is also about. The king returns. And we are constantly commanded, as his subjects, we could say, to wait for that day. It says we wait eagerly, expectantly, for the coming king. This is what we are looking for. We long to see an end to man building his own kingdom, to Satan's influence in this world. And in this book, we do see an end to that. Revelation chapter 11, it says the kingdom of the world, as in, i.e., everything we've just talked about, it says that has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you wanted to sum up the book of Revelation, you could say the king is coming, be ready. That is really the message of Revelation. So with that in mind, let's turn to the first chapter in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, we're only going to do three verses. Now, some of your Bibles, if you have a King James, it'll probably say the revelation of St. John the Divine above it. Ignore that. That's not part of the Bible. That's just a translator's uh, heading, and it's totally wrong. The actual title is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the title of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, taken from the first three words, first four words there. So let's just read it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. The revelation. So in Greek, that is the word apocalypsis. This is where we get our term apocalypse from. Now, you've probably, I'm sure you've heard the term apocalypse. It, the book is actually then called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, in popular culture, the word apocalypse is always associated with some sort of doomsday scenario, some destruction or plague or zombie or blah, blah, blah. That is what apocalypse is really associated with. And that, again, is drawing from Revelation, but it's taking in, it's not really what the word actually means. The word apocalypse actually means an unveiling, like drawing back the curtain is the imagery to show something more clearly, an unveiling. And when referenced to a person, which it is in this context here, it means to make that person visible, to reveal that person to someone else. So the very first words of this book we learn that the purpose of the book of Revelation is to make something clear. And understand that. Because most people have a confusion. They don't like the book of Revelation because they believe it's unclear and it's hard to interpret. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to make something clear. That is its actual purpose. It's not to obscure. It's not to be shrouded in mystery. Now here's the amazing thing that I want to highlight to you. What is it supposed to make clear? What is it supposed to unveil? When you draw back the curtain, what are you supposed to be staring at? says it right there in the first verse, in the first three words that we read. It unveils the person of Jesus Christ. In amongst everything else that we're going to study in this book, we're going to study human government, we're going to study evil, we're going to study all the different things of nature, the plagues, the worldview, we're going to look at the nation of Israel, all these different things, and they're, they're amazing to study. But all of that is only for one purpose. The supreme purpose of the book of Revelation is a grand vision to reveal the risen, glorified Lord in all of his majesty and glory to the world, to the church primarily, but then our job is to take that to the world. That is the king of the book of Revelation. Now, again, how can you not want to study a book whose main purpose is to reveal your Lord in greater, greater detail? That's exactly what we're here to do. Of course, we would say all scripture is a revelation of God, 
But the book of Revelation reveals Jesus Christ in a unique way. There's no other book that starts like this, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's unique. It's absolutely unique. He is the central theme of this book. And just as we see Christ revealed, obviously, throughout the scriptures, you see him revealed in this book in a way like none other. Let's just look at a few of the names of Jesus Christ that you'll see in this book, just to show you how clearly he is revealed in this book. Revelation 1.1, he's called Jesus Christ. He's called the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the son of man, the living one, he that holds the seven stars, the son of God, he that hath the seven spirits of God, the holy and true one, he that has the key of David, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb that has been slain, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the faithful and true, the word of God, the beginning and the end, the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. There is no other book in the Bible that reveals Jesus Christ in quite such a glorious way as this. Every single one of those titles tells you something about who he is, about what he will do, about what his nature is like, and about what he is here on this earth, he came to this earth to do, and what he will do when he comes back to this earth. And this is the thing I always find amazing. You see, people can listen to something like this and they can say, well, a lot of religions think their, their God is going to come back, but there is no other religion that has him coming back a second time that you can have him come back on this earth. When Jesus came to this earth the first time, 2,000 years ago, he interacted with Roman governments. He interacted with all the different things that were on that earth at the time. We have historical records of it. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies, or 150, you could say, conservatively, when he was here on this earth. Many of those can be checked and verified just by looking at ancient history. There is no way that that could have happened without the hand of God behind it. It says he came at this earth at the appointed time so that he could die for the sins of the world. And then he left and he put the church with the mission of telling that message to the whole world. And when he went, he promised, one day I will come back. If everything happened that he, just like he promised for the first coming, you've got good justification for assuming everything will happen just like he said for the second coming. And much of it already has happened. We'll cover some of that as we go through Revelation. This is why a lot of, a lot of people who don't believe in Christianity, when they come and study the book of Revelation, they end up becoming Christians because there's just so much fulfilled prophecy that we're going to see come through it, at the same time of having the king of the universe revealed to you in the ways that all these titles display to you. It's very hard to close your heart and your mind to something like that. This alone, again, is another reason why we should study the book of Revelation. We should more than study it. We should pour over it. We should learn everything we can about it. Every recommendation that we have, every vision of Jesus Christ, every part of his character should be something we long to peer into. Let's look at the rest of that verse. It says, which God gave to him to show his bondservant. So it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which he gave to John to show his bondservants. Now, the things which must soon take place, he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So God gave this revelation of Jesus Christ to the church. Its source is divine. It tells us about the inheritance that the Son of God will have when he comes in his glory. It was not given to remain hidden. It was given to be shown to the church. And then it says the things that must soon take place. Now, a lot of people wonder, well, this was 2,000 years ago this was written. How could that be classified as soon? That's true. That it's just the English to Greek translation that confuses us a bit where we only have one word for soon. In Greek, they have lots of different words. The word that's translated here is not necessarily a chronological kind of nearness. It's indicating a swiftness 
basically the, con the concept he's trying to convey is that the book is speaking of future things. He is saying, and Jesus said this when he was on the earth, his death, resurrection, and ascension moved us into what he calls the last epoch of human history. So if you go through the Bible, you'll find that the world is sort of categorized into different sections of human history. The last major division was from 2000 AD. It's, this is it. We are in the last era of history. The same author of Revelation, the Apostle John, in one of his epistles, he said this, children, it is the last hour. This is the same concept he's conveying here. Although, yes, for us, that's been 2,000 years. It means we are in the last period of human history. It is the last hour. And this is why he's given this book to show us the things that will take place so that we are not surprised by them. We're not worried about them. We have our confidence and security in the Lord. It says he sent and communicated, or your Bible might read signified there. If you have that a slightly different translation, it says signified. And this is a good word. It basically shows you that this message was communicated in many ways through symbols and signified signs. This is one of the reasons why people are confused with the revelation. They pick a sign and they find something and make it into anything they want to do. That's misunderstanding the Jewish context of, of the book here. Most of these signs that you read in the book of Revelation, like the dragon and the sea, they're not just coming out of the imagination of the author. They're, like I said, being drawn from pre-existing imagery in the Old Testament. The vast majority of them are from the Old Testament. So it's just people's misunderstanding of how that works. Some of them are, I believe, used to express the inexpressible elements of a heavenly vision that we don't really have language for. And a lot of it is because this book is part of a genre called apocalyptic Jewish writing, and it does use symbols. And we need to be sensitive to that as we go through. I'll try and make that as clear as possible as we go through. And it says he gave these to his bondservant, John. This is the Apostle John. It pretty much tells us who the author of this book is. It was the unanimous view of the early church until about the third century when people started trying to question things. Let me just read to you one historical quote by a man called Justin Martyr. This is from the second century. He said, there was a certain man, he was a church, church leader at this time, there was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem and that thereafter in general and in short the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would take place. So this is, again, him. The, you can get a good glimpse into the theology of the early church and it was millennial and it was fully a belief that the apostle John wrote this book. Most uh, people assume that he wrote this book in the year 95 AD. He was exiled by the Roman Emperor Domitian to an isle called Patmos, where he wrote this book in 95 AD. Let's look at verse 2. It says, Who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. This was the role of the Apostle John, to testify to the word of God and to Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful description of the life of the believer. Every single one of us here who is a believer, who follows Jesus Christ as King and Lord, this is our job too, to testify to the word of God and to Jesus Christ. It helps us remember what our eternal purpose is on this earth. Everything we're going to learn about the King of Kings in this book must be understood in light of this amazing fact. We are privileged to live and serve and to testify to the King of all kings. That is our mission and our purpose here. And then let's do this final verse, and we'll end after this verse today. It says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So here we have one of the first of seven beatitudes, or seven blessings that you will find throughout the book of Revelation. 
And it seems to be that there is a special blessing promised for the person who reads this book here. Now, that's an unusual thing to have in a book of the Bible. You don't find that in any other book of the Bible. Obviously, reading all of the Bible, you'll be blessed. But there is something special about the book of Revelation. What is it really referring to? Well, there's a few different things, but before I just mention a few of them, this also shows us that John knew he was communicating Scripture. He wasn't just writing this book out of the imagination of his own mind. This was coming from the Lord. It says that this book is prophecy. That means it does tell you things that will take place before they happen. The reason God puts that sort of stuff in the Bible, this is why we have it in the Old Testament, that telling us that you know, the Messiah would come uh, when he did, that he would be crucified by the Romans, that after that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. All of these big historical events that can be proven from history... The reason he says he puts those things in the word of God is so that we may know when they happen that there is one who is in charge of history and I am he, and that you may believe in me and be saved. That is his whole purpose in doing this sort of thing, to reveal that element. But it says the book is prophecy and it refers to things that much of yet has not come to pass. It also says we need to read it, hear it and heed it. Read those words, hear those words and heed it. And this is a wonderful description of what we should do with all the word of God. All of our time in the Word, we should read it. This is referring to public reading. Remember, no one had their own personal Bibles in this day. The public reading would happen from the, from the churches. But we need to listen and obey it. And this is the hard part, isn't it? And this is what we see, particularly in Western cultural Christianity. People can come to church, or they, can, they like Easter and they like Christmas and so on, and all these things. Or you can be involved in maybe the motions of a previously former Christian country or whatever you want to call it like that. But there's actually no real depth of faith there. They don't actually know the King of Kings. They don't actually understand the Word of God. So therefore, they do not obey it. And therefore, that is not really testimony or witness to Jesus Christ on this earth. It says you need to read it, you need to understand it, and then you need to heed it, and you need to do it. That is the threefold heart of a Christian believer. And if you know the Lord, that will be your privilege to do that. You will long to do that. You'll desire to do that. And this is what the Word of God does in our lives. We live in expectation of the arrival of our king and our master. The Bible says that we are to wait expectantly as a bride for a bridegroom. That is the imagery there. It's not like we're waiting for a conqueror. For us, we, we're waiting for a bride. It's the bride and bridegroom relationship. It's very intimate imagery. This is the promise that we get through the book of Revelation. We will be blessed as we study this book because it will take us deeper into the scriptures than probably any other book of the Bible because you have to study so much of the Bible to understand it. It will help you understand the times. Jesus says, do not be ignorant of what is going on in the world. Understand the times. I shared with you very briefly some of those other narratives of the world. And that was honestly was just the tip of the iceberg. We will have to hit some of those things more full on as we talk about global economics in certain parts of the book of Revelation, one world governments, globalism, dictators. All these things will come up in the book of Revelation. And I can understand studying a long time ago, you may have thought it was far off, but some of these things, we read the book of Revelation, I could read newspapers to you that sound very similar. Like We are in these times. You know, we have to understand these, but yet everyone has a view, a perspective, but the word of God is the only true perspective that actually comes from the Lord. And for me, probably the main reason why you'll be blessed studying this book is that reason I said earlier. It unveils the person of Jesus Christ like no other book. He is the book of Revelation. It is his unveiling, and that is what we're going to study. So for those reasons alone, I'm excited. 
for you to study this book as a church. I'm going to pray that it will be a real blessing for us as we all get to know Jesus better. There will be stuff in it that convicts us. There will be stuff in it that amazes us. Please pray for me as we study and as we go through this book. I'll be praying for you that you would hear the word of the Lord as we go through this book. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.